Where the facts warrant it, these men should be brought to trial so that those among them who are guilty of these crimes should not escape punishment. In 1945, the Allied powers prepared to hold the Nazi leaders accountable for the crimes committed during World War II. Richard Sonnenfeld sat down with a man whose name was as synonymous with Nazism as Hitler or Himmler. The subject of the interview, Goering, denied any culpability for the Holocaust or the war. Sonnenfeld was unimpressed, dismissing him as a hand-wringing witness who was trying to whitewash his past. But Goering continued with his denials, even producing a list of Jews he had helped escape the Nazis. His story seemed ridiculous to captors until a new interrogator arrived, Victor Paschkis. His aunt had been smuggled out of Germany and he had little trouble remembering the famous name of the man who had assisted her. It was Goering. But this wasn't Hermann, Hitler's number two. Paschkis and Sonnenfeld were sitting with his younger brother, Albert, a man wrongly accused of being a Nazi, when in fact, despite his brother's role in the regime, he had spent years battling against the Nazis. In this episode, I explore the story of the Goering brothers, Albert and Hermann. The Goerings were a well-to-do family from Northwest Germany. Their father Heinrich grew up during an exciting era as the Germanic-speaking states unified into a modern country. The process had been masterminded by Otto van Bismarck, who after the so-called carve-up of Africa, appointed Heinrich, the former cavalryman, as the first commissioner of Southwest Africa. The native people did not welcome this foreign encroachment in their land, and conflict followed. With limited resources at his disposal, Goering helped to draw an influx of German people and cash to Southwest Africa after gold deposits were found. The new arrivals helped to bolster the German colony, but it was later discovered that the gold rush was an elaborate hoax. It's unknown whether Goering was complicit in the hoax, but he was certainly a beneficiary. The native Herero and Namaqua were on the opposite side of the spectrum, as the gold rush led to further ethnic conflict with settlers that resulted in what is now regarded as a genocide committed in Southwest Africa some 50 years before the Holocaust. Around this time, Heinrich Goering was widowed, but shortly thereafter, he married a Bavarian peasant named Francisca Tiffenbrunn. The duo had five children, one of whom, Hermann, was born in 1893, while his father was stationed in Haiti. His mother returned to Germany to give birth, but within weeks she was back in Haiti, and it was three years before she saw her son again. In the meantime, he and his siblings were raised in a castle owned by a family friend, Hermann Eppenstein, who was a Jewish businessman. He was Hermann Goering's godfather and de facto parents, but it was an unorthodox situation. Heinrich Goering spent most of his time overseas, while his wife Francisca periodically returned to Germany and left with her children in Eppenstein. Unsurprisingly, rumours of an affair became widespread, and these only intensified in 1895 when she gave birth to Albert Goering, a child with an uncanny physical similarity to Eppenstein. 
Decades later, Albert's family revealed that he claimed to be the biological son of Epenstein. Historians have disputed this, as his mother was in Haiti at the time he would have been conceived. But true or not, crucially, Albert seems to have believed Epenstein was his father, and this belief may have had an effect on his later actions. Paternity apart, the two Goering boys were quite different. Hermann lapped up tales of martial valour that Germany as a whole had adopted from the militaristic and nationalistic Prussian regime that led the unification drive. He was bombastic, playful, good at sports and keen to follow his father into the military. He wore a child's version of the Boer uniform and dressed up as a knight during playtime. But he lacked discipline and he ran away from military school feigning illness as he struggled to cope with the regimented lifestyle. In contrast, Albert was a quiet and studious kid. In the words of Herman, he was melancholy and pessimistic, but a good fellow. In 1913, the unusual living arrangement came to an end, as Epenstein announced his intention to marry Elizabeth Chandrovich, Edel von Kriegstrup. The Goerings were asked to leave, and they moved to Munich. Months later, Heinrich Goering, who by this time had become an alcoholic, died. It's worth noting that prior to this, the Austrian Emperor, Franz Joseph I, had bestowed a title upon Epenstein, making him a noble. It was an act that may have played a part in the fate of his own heirs decades later. In 1914, World War I erupted. At the time, Hermann was 21, his brother Albert 19, and like most men of their generation, the two brothers went to war. For Hermann, it was a chance to live out his childhood fantasies of valour and conquest. He found himself in the front lines, but his body struggled to cope with the damp conditions of trench warfare, and he was hospitalised with rheumatism. While he was convalescing, an old friend, Bruno Lurzer, suggested he join the newly formed Air Corps. Goering put in a transfer request which was rejected, but stubborn as ever, he defied his commanders and just inserted himself into the Air Force, even flying with Lurzer in action. His absence from the infantry was detected, and he was confined to barracks before eventually being allowed to join the Crown Prince's 5th Army. He received an Iron Cross for his service, and over the next few years he received more medals on his way to a reported 22 air victories. But he also suffered setbacks. Injuries sustained in 1916 caused him to miss a year of action, during which time he stayed at the Epenstein Castle where he was raised as a child. He came to refer to Epenstein's new wife as his godmother, thus emphasising the closeness of the relationship between him and the Jewish businessman who was effectively his surrogate father. Albert's war story wasn't as eventful, but he also served in the trenches as a signalman. He was injured at Ypres in 1914 and sustained a bullet wound just before the end of the war in 1918. Despite his setbacks, he was promoted to communications unit leader and awarded the Iron Cross. But in 1918, with Germany racked by food shortages and revolutionary movements, the war came to an end. Like many in the German army, 
Hermann Göring saw the armistice as a betrayal of the military by the civilian government. He defied orders to surrender and had his men deliberately crash their aircraft rather than turn them over to the victorious allies. After the war, Albert returned home to Munich where he enrolled at the Technical Institute to study engineering. On campus, anti-Semitism was rife. While laws discriminating against Jews had been abolished 50 years earlier, prejudice remained. Indeed, the so-called stab-in-the-back hypothesis about civilian leaders costing Germany the war tied their actions to an imagined anti-German conspiracy orchestrated by communists, republicans and Jews. One of Albert's fellow students was a man named Heinrich Himmler. The war had ended before he had finished his military training, and yet he earned to experience the kind of action many of his classmates had experienced. Unlike some, Himmler was said to be polite to Jewish students, initially at least, but before long he became involved with the emerging Nazi party. Albert from the outset was an outspoken critic of the fascists. When his brother Hermann having spent a few years as a stunt pilot in Sweden, returned to Munich and became involved with Himmler and the Nazis, Albert referred to their leader, Hitler, as a bastard who would ruin his brother. By this time, both brothers had found love. Albert married Marie von Ammann in 1921, but the marriage was short-lived. While quieter and more studious than his older brother, Albert was a bon vivant with a penchant for drinking and womanizing. Hermann's romance was also complicated. While in Sweden, he had met Karen von Kantzau, a woman five years his senior, and he was immediately smitten. But there was a problem. While estranged from her spouse, Karen was married and had a young child. The relationship quickly flourished, despite causing a minor scandal. And shortly thereafter, she followed Hermann to Munich, divorced her husband, and married Göring in January of 1923. That same year, the Nazis, including Himmler and Hermann Göring, orchestrated the Munich Beer Hall Putsch, a failed attempt at a fascist coup. Göring was shot during violent scenes which saw both policemen and Nazis killed. As a wanted man, he was smuggled out of Germany to Innsbruck, Austria, where his wounds were treated. He was given morphine for the pain but he quickly became addicted to the drug. His dependency led to violent episodes and erratic behavior that led to him being confined to an asylum in 1925, where he had to be restrained in a straitjacket. Seemingly having beaten his addiction, he was released in 1927, and after amnesty was declared, he and Karen returned to Germany. By this time, his younger brother, Albert, had married a second time, he and his new wife, Irma von Miltner, moved to Vienna, where he worked for Junkers. At the time, the socialist government of Vienna were undertaking huge infrastructure projects to provide accommodation and services for the influx of people who'd moved to the city after the war. Many of the aristocratic families had abandoned Vienna after World War I, while working-class decommissioned soldiers settled there, as well as refugees from Eastern Europe including up to 30,000 Jews. Albert thrived in this multicultural environment 
and established an eclectic network of friends. By the mid-1930s, he was working as a technical director for a film studio. Here he formed close friendships with members of the Jewish community, such as the film producers Oscar and Kurt Pilser. Back in Germany, Hermann's world was shaken when his wife, after years of battling illness and enduring her husband's violent rage, suddenly passed away. He was crestfallen and turned his home into a monument for his late wife. Even as he became romantically involved with his soon-to-be second wife, Emmy Sonnenmann, he built a hunting lodge and dedicated it to the memory of his first wife, calling it Karen Hall. But even more tumultuous than his personal life was his professional life. The Nazis, despite lacking a majority, had been allowed to form a government in 1932. Seemingly in protest at the Nazis, a fire was started at the Reichstag Parliament building in 1933. A Dutch communist was arrested and charged with starting the fire. In response to his alleged actions, the Nazis rounded up 4,000 communists and suspended basic human rights to facilitate summary detentions. A decade later, General Franz Halder claimed that Goering himself had started the fire and boasted about it at Hitler's birthday party in 1942. Goering denied making the statement or indeed setting the fire, but whether he was involved or not, the fire ultimately helped the Nazis consolidate power. In 1935, the Nuremberg laws were passed, which stripped Jewish citizens of basic rights and placed abhorrent restrictions on them. While they never had a formal falling out, by the late 30s, the Goering brothers hadn't seen each other in a decade. But Hermann initiated contact when he reached out to Albert in 1937. The famous German actress, Henny Porton, had refused to comply with the Nuremberg Laws, which would have meant her divorcing her Jewish husband on account of his race. Hermann asked his younger brother if he could find work for the actress in Austria, as she was effectively blackballed in Germany. Albert managed to arrange a movie contract for Porton at the Tobisch Sascha Studios, but any respite for Hedy and other Jewish exiles and their families was short-lived, with Nazi Germany annexing Austria in 1938. Albert immediately began to try and obtain visas for Jewish friends, such as the movie producer Pilser Brothers, to find sanctuary outside of Austria. But his defiance wasn't confined to the behind-the-scenes paperwork. On one occasion, shortly after the Anschluss, he witnessed German soldiers forcing two elderly Jewish women to scrub the streets. To the dismay of onlookers, he knelt down beside them and started scrubbing the cobbles himself. Soldiers dragged him away and threatened to arrest him, until stunned, they realised he was Hermann Goering's brother and released him. On another occasion, he got into an altercation with SA guards who'd forced an elderly woman to wear a sign saying, I'm a Jewish sow. Goering punched one of the guards and was immediately arrested before again being released on account of his brother. By this time, Eppenstein had passed away, but his widow was alive and deeply concerned about the fate of Albert due to his defiance of the Nazi regime. 
Hermann Göring visited her at his childhood home in 1938. He took the opportunity to award her lands and factories that had been requisitioned by the Nazis from Jews who had been driven into exile. It was a bizarre situation. His rationale was he wanted to pay the Eppensteins for the kindness the Jewish businessman and his family had shown towards his family in his formative years. And yet he accomplished this by stripping other Jewish people of their own property. In return for the land, Elizabeth Eppenstein transferred ownership of the castle where he'd grown up to Hermann Goering and his sister. The same year, with much pomp and ceremony, Hermann Goering visited Austria, where he convened a meeting with his family, including his estranged brother Albert. It was a chance for Goering to demonstrate his power to his siblings, and he reportedly offered to grant each sibling a wish. Hermann was stunned when rather than requesting land or money, Albert and his sister Olga demanded the release of Archduke Joseph Ferdinand of Austria from the Dachau concentration camp. Ferdinand was one of the thousands of Austrians who were perceived as enemies of the state and immediately arrested after the Anschluss. He was of the same Habsburg extended family as the Emperor Franz Joseph I, who brought much joy to the Goering household when he awarded their de facto father Eppenstein a title some 30 years earlier. Hermann was said to be embarrassed by the request, but the next day, Ferdinand was released from Dachau. On the 7th of November, 1938, Herschel Grinchspan, a Polish Jew living in Paris, went to the German embassy where he shot the German diplomat Ernst von Rath. The shooting came a few days after he'd received a postcard from his parents explaining they and thousands of other Polish Jews had been expelled from Germany. This shooting provided an excuse for a violent wave of attacks on Jews in Germany during what became known as Kristallnacht. Estimates on fatalities vary from scores to hundreds, but beyond the human death toll, hundreds of synagogues and thousands of Jewish-owned businesses were ransacked and destroyed. In response to the attack, Hermann Goering met with Reinhard Heydrich, Himmler's loyal deputy, and tasked Heydrich with solving the so-called Jewish question. Rather than focusing on the criminals who'd attacked the Jews, the duo discussed expelling every Jew from Germany, as in their view, the Jews had brought this problem on themselves. It was during this meeting Heydrich proposed using the Star of David badges that eventually enabled the Nazis to identify and round up Jews before sending them to concentration camps. Heydrich complained that it would take over a decade to expel every Jew, whilst rebuffing Goering's idea of confining Jews to isolated cities with no contact to the outside world. Eventually, Goering decided to settle upon a financial punishment the Jewish citizens of Germany would be fined a billion Reichmarks just for enduring these violent attacks. He then said, The swine won't hurry to commit another murder. In general, I must say once again, I should not like to be a Jew in Germany. Kristallnacht and its aftermath brought Goering back into contact with an old Jewish friend, Hugo Rothenberg. Born in Germany, Rothenberg migrated to Denmark where he became a wealthy leather industrialist. After World War I, 
Hermann Göring, during his post-war jaunt in Scandinavia, came to Rothenburg seeking a loan. Rothenburg obliged, and upon returning to Germany, Göring wrote to him, As a result of your solicitude, I have an unsettled account with you, which I look forward to being able to repay in order to demonstrate my gratitude. With heartfelt greetings, I remain yours, gratefully. Having seen the impact of the Nuremberg Laws and the events of Kristallnacht, Rothenberg bravely made his way to Berlin in late November 1938 and sought a meeting with his old friend Göring. Rothenberg hoped he could persuade his powerful friend to bring an end to the persecution of the Jews. And Rothenberg didn't hold back as he provided specific evidence of numerous anti-Semitic crimes, most of which Göring acknowledged as simply being harmful to the German economy, and events that he said would not be repeated. But even when presented with a Jewish man whose generosity had saved him from financial ruin, he was adamant that the only solution to the problem was for the Jews to leave Germany. He did, though, assure his friend it would be done in a peaceful and orderly manner. In 1939, Albert Goering was hired as an export director at the Skoda Works in Czechoslovakia, a country that had recently been invaded by Germany. Bruno Selecki, an old acquaintance of Albert's, hired him for the role because while being German, he was a known Hitler critic. Therefore, he was someone the Czech workers could stomach working with. Skoda chairman Willem Romatko later reported that Albert spoke openly and frequently against Hitler while at work. He also helped at least half a dozen Jewish co-workers escape, sometimes by forging his brother's signature on documents. He also provided the Czech resistance with accurate intelligence on the impending invasions of France and the Low Countries. More brazenly, he would seek slave workers from the German concentration camps, then stop the truck carrying them en route to the plant and allow them to escape. This also claimed that he encouraged workers to sabotage equipment in the factory to disrupt production at a plant where tanks and guns were being manufactured. Unsurprisingly, Albert's activities did not go unnoticed. By the early 1940s, the Gestapo were actively monitoring him when he began an affair with the Czech model, Mila Klazarova. The duo married in 1942, with brother Herman conspicuous by his absence from the wedding. By this time, Albert had settled into a pattern of making defiant acts, then seeking forgiveness or favours from his brother. The Nuremberg investigators deduced that he played to his brother's ego. Basically, he'd go to him and say, since you're so powerful, can you sign this one document or assist this one person for me? Each time, Herman would get annoyed, but seemingly wrapped up in his own sense of power, he would dutifully oblige. But things escalated in 1944, when the SS froze Albert's travel privileges and issued an arrest warrant for him. This time, his fate was out of his brother's direct control. But Hermann Göring turned to Albert's college alumni, Heinrich Himmler, and begged him to intervene in the case. The charges against Albert were immediately dismissed, 
though Herman reportedly informed his brother, it was the last time he would intervene on his behalf. In 1941, it was Hermann Goering who tasked Reinhard Heinrich with finding a final solution to the Jewish question. Although he later argued at Nuremberg that his actual words were total solution, which he claimed meant something other than extermination. But whatever his intentions, at the Wannsee Conference of 1942, Adolf Eichmann compiled a list of not just the Jews in Germany and the occupied territories, but of every Jew in Europe, even those in neutral nations, such as Ireland and Portugal. Given Himmler's ban on deportations, Heinrich said the only option was to exterminate every Jew in Europe. The idea of Hermann Goering as being something other than anti-Semitic was specifically addressed by Heinrich Himmler at an SS meeting, where he explained that the so-called Jewish problem couldn't be solved if exceptions were made for every quote-unquote good Jew favoured by particular Nazis. The race as a whole had to be eliminated without exception. Himmler's cold, sociopathic view of human beings was in contrast to many of his colleagues, but people like Hermann Goering while claiming to be more humane, were guilty of separating the personal from the unknown. It was unpalatable to them to expressly order the death of a Jewish friend, relative or colleague that they personally knew. But when strangers were reduced to nameless numbers on charts produced by Eichmann, they seemed to have no problem having those people imprisoned, enslaved or eliminated. When the war ended, Albert Goering handed himself into American forces in Salzburg on the 9th of May. He was arrested and transferred to a facility in Augsburg, where Hermann, who'd also been captured the same day, was being held. It was the last time the brothers ever met. The case against Hermann Goering was easy to make once the Allied powers settled on pressing charges that included crimes against humanity, waging an illegal war, and plundering assets. The aim of the prosecutors was to bring justice to the highest ranking Nazis. With Hitler, Himmler and Goebbels dead, Hermann Goering as Hitler's number two was easily the most prominent Nazi on trial. He developed the Gestapo and created the first concentration camps, relinquishing them to Himmler in 1934. Goering claims its purposes have been misunderstood, but admits that as a matter of course and a matter of duty, we would have used Russia for our purposes. And he participated in the conference of the 16th of July, 1941, when Hitler said the National Socialists had no intention of ever leaving the occupied countries, and that all necessary measures, shooting, desettling, etc., should be taken. He had to be weaned off morphine once again, but prosecutors were impressed by his IQ and his combative response to questioning. But when footage emerged of the concentration camps, Goering covered his eyes and denied all knowledge of the Holocaust. It was an improbable claim and went in the face of extensive documentary evidence. He was found guilty and condemned to death with the final judgment reading, his guilt is unique in its enormity. The record discloses no excuses for this man. Defiant as ever, 
he asks to be shot by firing squad, rather than being hanged as a quote-unquote common criminal. The court rejected his demand, but before he could face justice, he swallowed a cyanide pill and killed himself. Albert, meanwhile, was quickly released by the Allies once he produced his list of dozens of people he'd helped escape. But he was then handed over to the Czechoslovak authorities, who charged him with using slave labour and running a facility that benefited the Nazi war machine. But as in Munich, numerous individuals came forward to share stories of Albert's resistance activities at the Skoda plant and his role in assisting Jewish escapees. The case was quickly dismissed. But in post-war Germany, there was no role for Albert Goering. To nationalists, he was a traitor. To the communists of East Germany, he was a bourgeois liberal. To others, he was the brother of a notorious war criminal. And for these reasons, he was shunned. He turned to alcohol and he struggled to find work. His philandering continued and his wife left him and took their daughter to Peru. His ex-wife encouraged his daughter to write to him and she did so routinely until age 10, at which point, having never received a single reply, she stopped writing. He spent his last days living on a government pension in a small flat, but realizing the pension would be inherited by a spouse. As a last act of kindness, he married his housekeeper shortly before he died to ensure she would have some financial stability after his demise.